Hello, and welcome to the Portland Community College EMT Basic Part 2 Lecture Series uh, by Scott Cooper. I am Andrew Christensen, a student of Mr. Cooper, and I just wanted to put these lectures on iTunes so I could help my fellow students um, have access to them in case they wanted to recall the lectures. So I had to do it in about segments of an hour. I couldn't quite figure out how to get the podcasts in GarageBand to exceed an hour and six minutes. So I put them in hour segments and they're labeled to be like one and two type deal. So you know that they're all there. Anyway, um, this first lecture is respiratory emergencies. And here's Scott Cooper. Respiratory system, typically the bronchioles and the bronchi, uh, the lining of them, a smooth muscle and the like. Because it's smooth muscle, just like the inside lining of the arteries, they can dilate and constrict based on the body's needs. But if someone has an illness, then they may very well experience um, abnormal constriction, for instance. And then we use medicines upon inhalation that go in and target specific cells that, um, in the smooth muscle there that stimulate it to open up the airways and more air can get through. Um, another thing, though, is like we talked about, um, you got a medicine that you're trying to give to somebody, like in the case of an inhaler for someone having trouble breathing, but then you can end up with some of that medicine going down, and as you know, the alveoli are um, in, surrounded and connected to capillaries. So some of that medicine gets down and crosses the capillaries into the bloodstream. So the side effect of that drug is making the heart rate go up because it's a pure beta drug, a drug that stimulates the heart, and it also stimulates the respiratory tract. So target organ is the respiratory tract, but the side effects that you can see from giving it would be, for instance, a decreased pulse. So we have um, prescribed meds, this being an example of tablets or spray or nitroglycerin, following the sublingual route. And the sublingual area is a highly vascular area, um, and medicines are absorbed very quickly. I mean, you give someone a nitro and within Within two minutes, it's going to, if there's going to be an effect, they're going to notice it usually. Um, now, there are times when it doesn't work for various reasons, um, like it's too old, stuff like that, or it's been exposed to light, it hasn't been properly cared for, so it's been inactivated, something like that. But um, nitroglycerin, one of the keys that they point out here is any medicine that's given that way, we want to encourage the patient not to chew or swallow it. And so, some people, um, that's difficult to do, even if you tell them and even if they understand, because they have difficulty controlling their tongue or their muscles or something like that. And so you sometimes have to actually put it under there. And uh, I've had to do that before myself, where I just put it there. Otherwise, it ends up rolled around and lost somewhere. Then there's injection. And when you use an EpiPen, it's, it's a manufactured device that's made with a particular size needle with a particular length and a particular dose of the medicine. Now there are adults and it's also pediatric. And that's another thing you have to think about is when you're doing medicines, um, uh, an EMT may have to treat a pediatric patient just as much as you have to, have to treat an adult. 
So if that's the case, you're going to have to know how to give the correct dose. So an injection is basically entering the medication into the tissues, and it's a quicker route than oral um, because the needle is injected in and being absorbed through the, the vasculature in the area of the muscle. There's um, subcutaneous, which is in the fatty tissue underneath the surface of the skin. And then you have intramuscular, which is sprayed in deeper down into the muscle. So this is an example of a prescribed inhaler where they have a chamber. In this case, that's a sprayed inhaler. And this improves the uh, intake of the medicine based on the fact that medicine comes into the container and sits there and is available for repeated breaths. Whereas here, they get the one shot and then when they exhale, um, they, uh, they may exhale some of the medicine, but they don't have more medicine to take in. And this is allowing with each breath to take in more of the medicine. So um, anybody know any asthmatics any, or anybody that uses a chamber? Um, and a lot of times when you'll get called because someone, for instance, ran out of their medicine or left it somewhere. And that's the time, a lot of the time when the EMS gets called for whether it's this or something else. Now, when these are made, the droplet size for these inhalers are, it's made to spray things out at a certain size so that the medicine gets maximum absorption from the respiratory. And it's the same thing with a thing called a nebulizer that you may have seen where it's in the book in the very back of this uh, chapter where, or no, the respiratory chapter, where the patient um, is breathing in a continuous mist, okay? And uh, so the medicine is um, bubbling inside this tool in the chamber that bubbles it and makes the droplets a certain size. So that it works most effectively. Now, when you're given the medicine, uh, first of all, you have to know what the indications are. Okay? So obviously, uh, an indication is when a patient needs to have it. Okay? Put in simple terms. So um, when we find from our exam the history and signs and symptoms that a patient has an indication for a medicine then it's time to be looking at um, either assisting them with their own or employing our protocol or calling in for medical control to administer complementary care, whatever the circumstance may be. So, um, and this is information right out of your book, so it's nothing, um, not anything different. So, um, then we have contraindications, which is the opposite. Something that could be harmful um, and, or inappropriate to give to the patient is a contraindication. So that would be a reason not to administer medicine. Every medicine has one consistent contraindication. That is a known allergy to it. Um, but then there's often many others. And then we talked before about what an allergy. Not only can we ask a patient what an allergy is, but what happens to them when they take a medicine. Um, and a lot of the times, it won't be as much of an issue if uh, 
they just say, well, it just makes them feel goofy or woozy or something, versus they go into a full-blown allergic reaction. So, the dose of a medicine is the amount of the drug that we're going to administer, and that is typically given in some sort of metered weight. The most common would be milligrams, but you'll also see grams, uh, the is the glucose is grams, the charcoal is in grams, the aspirin is in milligrams, the micro is in milligrams. So all your meds are either milligrams or grams. So that is the weight dose of the med. Now there's also the volume. Okay, and the volume would be typically in milliliters, which is the same as cc, they're exactly the same. cc is a cubic centimeter. So, the weight of a medicine is here, and the volume is here, because for instance, uh, if you have a medicine that is you have two milligrams of a drug, okay? And that two milligrams of a drug is in one cc of water. If I give half a cc of that water, how much of the drug is it? One. Okay? So the volume and the weight are two different things. Now, sometimes the, they end up being the same based on the concentration of the drug. So, like epinephrine that you give is one milligram per cc. And what that means is one milligram per one cc. So that means if you give an adult dose, which what those injectors would have, or what you would give if you were drawing it up. 0.3 milligrams, in this case, is easy because it's one to one. Same. 0.3 milligrams, 0.3 cc is real simple. So that just kind of gives you an idea that you got weight versus volume, and they're not necessarily the same. And then we also have actions or mechanism of actions, also known as um, the therapeutic effect. So this is the desired effect or the, the on the body, or the effects, yeah, the, on the body as a result of giving the medicine. So we're trying to actually target something like I described earlier, and here that's targeting the airways and trying to stimulate them to open. So, specific mechanism of action. All right, so there's a term that refers to the method in which the dose of the indicated medicine is to be given. 
method by which we're administering it, which could be inhalation, oral something, or injection for basic. Okay, and then some medicines, uh, despite their therapeutic effects, also have side effects, which is where some other effect can occur in the body that's uh, outside of what we're trying to accomplish with the medicine. So when you use a medicine in the field, we have, it's very interesting here, as I, over the years, and as I was looking into this during the Christmas break, and I'm going, okay, for centuries, it's been the five rights. And then for whatever reason, probably for simplification, your book has the four rights. And as I was actually, something I learned last term teaching a paramedic class, um, I found out that there is a new right that's been added in there. It's now the six rights. So what I'm going to do is give you the benefit of all the information because I want you to know what the current day stuff is, even though the book is very current and everything. What you're looking at here is these are things that have to do with when you're administering the medicine. You obviously want to give it to the right person. You want to be giving them the right medicine, the right amount, give it the right way, and at the right time. But we also have to consider um, documentation was added to that, and that would be a step after you have administered the medicine. Proper documentation of the, of the medication administration. So um, the handout that I gave you that's blue goes through and talks about those six rights. But it also, um, I sent it electronically to the print center from my computer during the spring break and then got it in my box today. It, um, it looks a tad bit microscopic if you are trying to read it. So, but it does have the um, website up in the upper right hand corner. So, where I got it. So, it talks to you about the six rights very clearly and gives you some detail on it. So, patients have to be reassessed whenever we give a medicine, and you always, after you give a medicine, you always take vital signs afterwards. So, usually, um, after you give a medicine, within about three to five minutes, I want to get a set of vitals and see if there's been any change as a result. And part of that, too, is if you have to repeat medicine or they have to have a different one or anything, you need to have a baseline for you to receive. So, you document the patient's response as well. What was the outcome of the, of the administration of the medication? So, on page 363, Um, this group over here says we're treating a patient who has chest pain and tells his wife has nitroglycerin. He asks if he should take her pills. What would we tell him? Okay, why is that? <clears throat> Pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, just um, if it's not medicine, it's 
practice that we don't know if it would have a negative reaction with other medicines they take or something like that. So that is correct. This front group, um, you're treating the patient who's diabetic, she appears very sleepy, um, only responds to loud verbal stimulus by briefly opening her eyes. The patient's sister says, give her some sugar. And actually what would probably be happening is the patient's sister would be saying, why are you guys doing something? Do something. <laughs> would you, why or why not? Yes. Because you can help administer or in this particular case, if we look, um, if you're you're with this crew, you guys are responding. Any other thoughts? <clears throat> Do you guys want to give it? What was it? Oh my god! Huh? <laughs> I couldn't hear what you said. Do you guys want to give it? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else want to give it? Or hey, not give it? Either way. The question: It appears like she might have a problem swallowing. So Sugar, she can't swallow it. She says she's just verbally responding. Uh, well, we check need to her, check her sugar level first. Okay. It's too low. She's diabetic. Yeah. Yeah, it's too low. You already know it's too low. That's a given. Okay. Um, but you know that's a that's a good point because you do this is a patient you want to give sugar to. However, if they cannot swallow or follow directions then you don't want to give it to them. Because then they start salivating and sits in their mouth and become an airway obstruction. So that's a time where we have to do it by IV. And I've had patients who were even sitting there kind of looking at me and they sort of talked to me and sort of on they were confused. I, I got to the point, some of my partners said, let's just try oral. I'm like, I'm not going to be here for an hour waiting. I just turn it on and start the IV and hit the road again. Give them sugar through an IV. Um, so if they can't follow directions, you're going to need ALS. So You'd have to either wait for ALS, go rendezvous with them, or transport to a place that could do it. Not if they're presenting like that. Now, if I have a patient that's sitting, see this one describes sleeping, responds only to loud verbal stimulus, and briefly opens your eyes. Uh, a lot of times I'll have a patient whose sugar's low and they're kind of out of it, and they might mumble stuff and. They got their eyes open, they're sitting up, but they're not slumped. Um, and they're breathing on their own, everything else, stabilized signs. Okay. Um, sometimes I'll take a little bit and see if putting it in the corner of their cheek will stimulate them, the primal part of their brain, to do something with it. But they sit there and just kind of go, oh. <laughs> Okay. Then I stop, I don't go with it anymore, you know. Um, but that's when I pop the IV in. So that would be with a small amount that wouldn't expect to cause a lot of trouble. And, you know, that's as far as I would go with somebody that's not completely oriented. I, I actually got that situation in my life where uh, my, my uh, elderly great aunt was unconscious. We went over to her house and she's a diabetic. And her daughter tried to stick a tube in you know, sugar and, and give her a dose. And she just, it just stayed in her mouth and it didn't do anything. Sure. She wasn't able to swallow her. That makes sense. That, that's an excellent description of the kind of circumstance, and you'll get there, and as an EMT, you have a diabetic that you wouldn't expect to have necessarily an airway problem and get there, and they do because something like that has happened. And the patient's on their back, they aspirate, stuff like that, and you're suctioning and turn them on their side, giving oxygen, listening to the lungs, hearing crap in their lungs, that kind of thing. Okay? All right. So, um, 
the Lin Boom group. Um, number three there. Can the patient, would the inhaler help the patient breathing 48 times a minute in the shower? Is asthma included in COPD? Yes. Stop breathing for about a half hour. Hypoxic and all time stuff would be out. No surprise. What they're looking at here is patients breathing at 48 a minute. How deep are their breaths? How far down are we wanting the medicine to go? Okay. So if we're wanting to get it down deep, what is that area called where? In, you know where the air is sitting dead space so we have to get past the dead space in order for it to do something we got about 150 cc's of dead space and if they're only breathing say two 250 cc's of air then that's what they're getting at is you're not apt to have any success with a patient who is with by just giving them inhaler and have them try to get it far enough down so what they're getting at here is someone who's in that much stress, breathing that fast, um, with that little air movement that you benefit from the diagnostic system. Now, I don't disagree actually that there could be a patient breathing 48 a minute that's able, based on their condition. This is where you get out there, you're in the field, you're following the you're following the textbook, and you got a patient sitting up like you're describing. If someone tried to force a mask on your face at that time. Hold, hold it on your face. I don't know. How do you think would you have been cooperative? Uh, that depends. It depends yeah, on, probably not at first, but sure. yeah. It depends on the SBR. If yeah. you get it on their face and you start helping them breathe and they go, oh, because and that's one thing we might be able to do. If you can get a couple few breaths in to get some expansion and then give them the medicine. Or give them the medicine and get a few breaths in and push the medicine in with your bag mask, then you would improve the odds. But if you're just giving it to them and expecting it to get all the way down and do its job, it may not in a, in a scenario like that. There's no way to inject medicine into a BBM. There is if you are trained to a level two. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Take a break. <laughs> Okay. Uh, 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 Hi. 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 Did you get signed in? Yeah, I did. Um, I don't have my GD stuff, but I have some from last. 
this is the term that I have to put So I have to still get people I understand. Um, and the reason why it's taking so much time is because my last teacher didn't get the grades in because everything was depending on my grades. Oh, yeah. Well, mine was like that, too. So it's like oh, my really? grades came in the last you minute, so I'm kind of just hammered. Hammered about Also, if, if you didn't um, register for your classes at the same time, like your seminar in this class, it won't let you do it. I did. Okay. Yeah, that was my mistake. I just fixed that one. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Well, it finally worked out. Yeah, it did work out. I was hoping. I was confident it would, but I did not want to promise anything. I didn't see what happened. So, like, we had a number of changes and people switching from like, class down to the day class. I don't know. So, it opened up for us. Nice. I was going to have to take a day off of work and just work through and leave the So, I'm still in the middle of So, yeah, I'm just happy to do that. Well, you the next day you'll get the other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Then you really will be like, I don't even care what you're saying, I'm just going to go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your brain be prepared to really be a sponge here. Um, there's a, a lot of stuff about respiratory that, you know, and what you learn here is what's going to carry you from here on uh, as far as encounter respiratory patient or whatever and so when we start looking at respiratory emergencies um, as with any what you'll find is a typical pattern in a medical type course a course like this is we'll start out by reviewing the appropriate anatomy and physiology that relates to the, the system that's being discussed and then we take we're going to take a look at the signs and symptoms of a patient that's having difficulty breathing um, as well as how do we care for them, and recognizing the need for medical direction to assist at times, um, and let's see, emergency cares, um, airway, how the airway management that we were learning about last term relates to a patient that has a respiratory condition, as well as um, signs of adequate air exchange, and being able to identify um, the information about medications like we talked about for respiratory emergencies. And also knowing the difference between adult and pediatric um, differences in respiratory issues as well as uh, differentiating between upper and lower airway types of diseases and the signs and symptoms thereof. So with that, um, as you know, we have the um, the pharynx, which is made up of the nasopharynx, oropharynx, the rhinopharynx, and, the, and then we have the larynx down here, which is the voice box, and the vocal cords are in there, and this, what's the space between the vocal cords called? The cords. Huh?
Well, let's look at this first. What's this plastic tissue that's moved down? Oh, the glottis. Yeah, that's the epiglottis. Epi means above, on top of, so on top of the glottis. Okay? So we have the epiglottis. And then um, you have the posterior tube going behind the trachea, which is the esophagus. And then in adults, the narrowest point in the airway, you should remember, is the glottis opening. Whereas in pediatric patients, the narrowest point is the cricoid ring. Okay? So it's actually below the point where an adult is. So you have, um, you know the, tra the um, trachea, but what's the name of this bifurcation here? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. Very good. And then you'll notice if you look, this is sort of depicted okay in this drawing, but you should know it, learn now at this point um, that you know that there, it splits off and all, but you'll notice that there's a rather, there's not as steep an angle uh, here. It just kind of curves off this way, whereas this one bends off more comparatively. So if a person inhales an object, the kid swallows a marble, that kind of thing, and it goes all the way down, typically where it'll go is down the right main stem. So you'll hear a right main stem um, is what will be described. And when paramedics are intubating and they put the tube in, if we put it in too far, then it will go down to the right main stem. And what will happen is we put the tube in and you go and start ventilating on it, um, and the right chest you hear air and get chest movement and the left chest you don't. So we have to pull it back to get it even to both because we want the tube to end up right to be able to ventilate both sides. Okay. So this is representing an alveolus and as you know circulatory wise it's the right heart that is bringing deoxygenated blood through the system to the capillaries here that are one cell thick. Then the deoxygenated blood, which is high in CO2 and low in oxygen, has the exchange take place here. And then we have oxygenated blood that goes back to the left side of the heart to be delivered out to the body. Here, we see a couple things that are um, new for you that you need to know. Because I know you know what the bronchus is and a lung and the thoracic wall, but notice that this lung has two lobes and this lung has three. <clears throat> Anybody know why? The heart. Yeah, the heart is taking up space. The ventricles it angles down to the left. And so you end up with two lobes on that side as a result. Very good, very good. Um, now, up here we have what's called the pleura. And the pleura is the lying of the lungs, the outside lining. And you'll notice that there's two layers of the pleura. And then there's actually a, a, a mini space between the layers. But really, they're on just on top of each other. And there's the body creates a lubricant that in between those two layers so that when you breathe in and out, the layers can slide over each other. So if you like have uh, a car engine and you, it requires four quarts of oil, but you only put two in and you run it a thousand miles. Okay, 
it's going to have a lot of friction and, and eat up the piston, cause damage, that kind of thing. And um, well, same thing here. If you were to have something like an infection get in there and it dries up an area of it, then when you breathe and the, the tissue tries to cross over it, it's going to hurt like the dickens. And so that is a, the term you hear for that type of pain is pleuritic pain. Okay? So um, when we hear the term pleuritic pain, it's referring, it is drawn from the word pleurisy, which is in an inflammation or infection of the lining pleura of the lungs. And that's a medical abbreviation for chest pain. So um, now you'll hear the term used other ways. The pleuritic will be generalized to kind of describe non-cardiac chest pain. So whereas cardiac chest pain is a squeezing tight, something like that, and it's internal, and they can move and all that stuff, and it doesn't make it better or worse by moving your arms or taking a deep breath or anything like that. Pleuritic pain will hurt with movement, deep breaths, that kind of thing, coughing. So like if you lifted a heavy box and then overstretched your muscles or you were moving one day and then you end of the day and this really hurts, especially you get up the next morning and there's a spot that really hurts because you pulled on the cartilage, say, uh, where the rib meets the sternum or you pulled a muscle or something, then when that happens, you'll typically hear someone refer to it as pleuritic chest pain. It's a generic, used generically there. Now, parietal and visceral is talking about anything that's visceral is relating to an organ. So what that's talking about is the, the part of the pleura that is lining in the lung tissue, lining the lung, the organ side of the pleura. And that is the visceral pleura. Whereas the parietal pleura is the outer layer of the pleura that's up against the chest wall. So we have this space in between the two, and that, that space is a potential space, and it can get filled in an abnormal situation. We talked about infection, but it can also get filled with air or fluid. And so when that happens, you end up with signs and symptoms and respiratory problems and things like that. If air is getting out of the lung and into that space and starts to expand the space, then the lung starts to push in and it collapses the lung. And fluid, when it gets in there, can travel around and cause compression. Um, and you will hear the crackling, rattling types of sounds sometimes when you're listening stethoscope. The pleuritic space. Yeah. Then we have this term, the mediastinum or mediastinum, however you want to say it. But it's, it's pointing at the heart, but what it's referring to is this space here where the heart, the trachea, the great vessels like the aorta, the vena cava, all those things are in that space. And we use the mediastinum as a reference because if, for instance, a patient had the 
problem of air out here and it was really compressing on the lung and pushing everything, you, you could see narrowing of the mediastinum. And that's, that's something that they see on x-ray or something like that, which is a clue. So it would be two of you to be familiar with these terms. I don't know why. Yes. Okay. With pediatric patients, as you may recall, they have some um, idiosyncrasies of their own, and one is the their tongue in relation to their mouth tends to be um, rather large. And so their airways more easily obstructed even by small objects, blood, swelling, or anything like that. Um, so it can block the pharynx rather easily. Also, the trachea is much softer, and those cartilages that wrap around um, are not fully developed yet. So as a result, it's like a vacuum hose that you can pull and collapse if you pull it too hard, which is why if we tilt the baby's head too far back, like over the end of a table or something, you can overstretch the airway and actually close it. Um, as a result of that, you may recall one of the things we talked about in class is placing a towel underneath the infant shoulders or a small child's shoulders in order to um, get a good position without overextending. That is, you want to do that with their head still touching the ground. If you've got it so that their head's raised up and won't touch the ground, then you're hyperextending. Um, we talked about the cricoid cartilage earlier being the narrowest point of the airway. Also, it is less developed at this point, so um, we can do the cricoid maneuver on a pediatric patient uh, to protect the airway, but also there's some potential that because of the flexibility, it may not be as effective. And because the chest wall is much softer, um, infants and children rely much more on the diaphragm to help them with their breathing. So you get this abdominal breathing. And so the movement of the diaphragm is, if there's excessive movement of it, then there's, it's a clue of respiratory distress in an infant or child. And that's evidenced by increased movement of the abdominal wall. And what you end up with is something called seesaw breathing, where the chest is, they inhale and the stomach pushes out and then vice versa. Seesaw breathing. So, the process of breathing itself, when we talk about air coming in and air going out, is inhalation. A what process? Active. Active. What does that mean? You have to use your muscles. You have to use your muscles, which requires energy. Everything that happens, happens has to do with what happens at a cellular microscopic level. What's happening is the cells are generating energy as, um, as a result of metabolism, and the energy is used to do tasks. And in this case, um, giving the muscles the energy to Do the inhalation. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, inspiration when people breathe in, you've got this process that's occurring, 
and it's the kind of thing where you want to know it very well and be able to describe it. Um, something that you see but don't really necessarily think about, but diaphragm and intercostal ribs, they contract, okay? When they contract, that's when they're doing the work. Um, the diaphragm will move downward so that the chest can expand inferiorly, and then the ribs will move upward and out, expanding the chest and making it larger so that you have a negative pressure and air can rush in. So, um, it is an active process when we are looking at inhalations, whereas an exhalation is a passive process. And so the diaphragm is coming back up and the chest is returning to its regular size. All right, so um, if we start taking a look at, well, um, we want to look at a patient and go, is their breathing adequate or not? Then um, adequate breathing is supporting life and the patient does not appear to be in distress as would be expected. And so it's going to be within uh, typically a calm process within a an adequate range of, of respiratory um, breaths uh, as far as respiratory breaths have been. And um, the patient's going to have normal colored skin. And another thing we look at is their mental status. Now, a person with altered mental status doesn't necessarily have a respiratory problem, but it can be an indicator because they're lacking oxygen as a result. Uh, and then we also want to evaluate the, the rhythm and quality of their breathing. Um, and if they are, if they're having inadequate breathing that's not supporting life, then it's going to lead to death. And in pediatric patients, recall there are some clues that, um, including nasal flaring, and then grunting is when they are trying to force their glottis open by making a grunting sound with their breathing. And so that's a, a, a significant sign of respiratory distress. And then the retractions of muscles and the seesaw breathing we mentioned earlier. So, um, respiratory issues are a leading killer in pediatrics. And the thing you need to realize is, remember from CPR possibly in the pediatric section, that the most common cause of cardiac arrest in pediatric patients is respiratory. They stop breathing first and the heart follows. That's the most common situation. And what's typical in kids, not only with respiratory, but also cardiovascular wise, but pediatric patients tend to maintain, maintain, maintain. Okay, they do, they just keep maintaining, 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 and then they just crash up. Whereas adults typically are going along and they decline when you see a declination and they're getting worse and getting worse. There's usually indicators, but kids will just drop off. So we're trying to, as ENTs, know what our clues are so that we can um, hone in on them and address them before the patient reaches. So when we talk about evaluating the patient's breathing, which difficulty breathing is a common complaint, um, there are other things that the patient may very well complain of with, along with them. And the, uh, along with a, a feeling of restlessness, 
not uncommon to have a tight feeling with the breathing. And they might even say my breathing feels tight. Um, but uh, what they talk about here is don't rely completely on the patient perception, rather the full assessment. Well, that you're looking at, you got to get a whole picture. I mean, if you listen to the lungs and air is moving in and out, perfectly fine. They're tape warm and dry. Um, you know, but they're breathing at 40 a minute because they're um, worked up about something or panicked about something. And uh, but they're saying um, that. They can't get air in and out and sometimes that's giving you a picture of well the patient says that but I'm not having to go into action right and put oxygen on this patient all real fast or ventilate them or anything like that because they are stable um, and that's what they're, what they're doing that. now in some cases a lot of problems that we see in, in respiratory cases are chronic problems that get worse anybody familiar with the medical term for worsening of a condition Exacerbation of a condition. So you have someone with emphysema, for instance, who gets, um, they're, they're having trouble breathing every day, they're on oxygen all the time, they're always having labor breathing, and it's a chronic problem, but they, um, with the chronic problems, it gets worse, and then they have an exacerbation of their condition, and we get called. Versus conditions that are an acute onset, there are some cases, situations where it's not a gradual thing that's been coming on. And um, it's uh, more of an immediate thing, like a patient who's suddenly got a hole in their lung and suddenly can't breathe properly, okay, and they're having trouble. Um, that would be an acute situation. So you'll learn as you go that some conditions, based on, you know, we learned, we learned in the PQRST and all that stuff, one of the things to ask about is was this gradual or was it sudden? Well, one of the things that that does for you is you learn more about different um, conditions and problems is clues as far as gradual versus acute onset. Now, acute means sudden, and this is a matter of information. In medicine, you also hear it suddenly. You gotta have a word for everything, so subacute is in between chronic and um, so you might have someone who comes in, maybe their problem started eight or 12 hours ago. So it, it hasn't been days or anything, but, um, and it didn't just start immediately, you know, like all of a sudden a half hour ago, but, uh, but it's something that has been going on for a little bit. So we have different clues, uh, some of which are, um, most of them are rather obvious, but um, as far as the heart rate goes, why would the heart rate be increased? It has to pump more blood through the lungs to get yeah, circulate more oxygen to the body. The heart says, you know what, we're not getting enough oxygen, so I'm going to start pumping blood faster, trying to get what oxygen we have circulating. Um, what about decrease? happening there is, due to a lack of oxygen, um, it's reached a point that the heart is being suppressed and it can't function like it should. And so a decreased pulse starts to present. And so and typically you, you see an increased pulse, but later on, way late in the game, you can see a decrease, like getting too slow. 
Then, of course, you may have cyanotic um, bluish skin, and the patient may have noisy breathing, and the accessory muscle usage. We've talked about many times. Um, their mental status may be affected, like we talked about. And you know about tripod positioning, but also there's pursed lips. Anybody know what that is? Pursed lip breathing. Talked about it in the book. The lips are close together. Okay, but why? What is it? What is it doing? Why would a patient be having trouble breathing, tighten their lips? To try to regulate it. They are. They are doing something to regulate it. When you're breathing through something, if you breathe through a big gold straw, is there more or less pressure with? Yes. Coffee straw? More. Okay. So if I purse my lips and tighten it way up, am I going to have more or less pressure backed up? More. So by having that pressure backed up into the respiratory system, they're trying to um, create a positive pressure in their airways to expand their alveoli. So they are pursing their lips. For that purpose. And this is a person who has pursed lips. Very good representation of that. And another thing that we'll see is a barrel chest presentation in emphysemic patients typically. Um, you see the neck muscles. And then um, the numbness or tingling that they may complain of, patients with emphysema will breathe um, the hyperventilate essentially to maintain their oxygen levels. And as a result, they're blowing out more CO2. And if they're, so they can get chronic numbness or tingling. Something that you'll, you can encounter similar to that is a patient who's hyperventilating and uh, let's say they are having or something like that, and they're breathing 60 times a minute, okay? They can't warm and dry, and, and they're breathing really fast, and what happens is it knocks their blood gases off so that their carbon dioxide levels, they're blowing out so much that the carbon dioxide levels get low. We've talked a lot of times about the carbon dioxide levels getting too high, right? That's a, and that's a concern. When it gets too low, um, it's not as dangerous, but what will happen is They'll start to have what's called um, carpo-ketal spasm. And I want you to be familiar with this because in the field you're going to see this. And as a BLS person, you can handle a patient like this very well um, because what they need is someone to try to help calm and talk them down. And Carpal pedal spasm is when the muscles in the hands, carpal means hand, pedal means feet, and they contract, and then what will happen is they'll have involuntary kind of positioning like this. And it's real uncomfortable, and it's scary, and it can hurt. So, and what the cycle is, they see this happening, it freaks them out, so they start to get more anxious, so they breathe faster, and the cycle just keeps going, and this gets worse. 
So typically what I'll do is very calmly tell the patient, you know, I, I see that you're scared and I see that you're breathing really fast. I just want you to know that you can control it. You got to have you control it instead of controlling you. Because as long as you're breathing this fast, your hands are going to continue to get worse. Um, because it's, it's making your blood chemistry off. And if you, if you begin to control your breathing, then it's going to continue to be a problem. Most of the time, you'd be successful. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes what they need is an injection of Valium. And, uh, and that's how we end up treating people, actually, who are that significantly affected. Um, we just need to sedate them. Because there's an underlying psychogenic problem that's going on. So, as is in the book, as they always address, there's certain you know, respiratory um, Ranges that are considerations for what's normal for adult childhood, but the most important thing to remember is that you have a memory aid with you, with your per on your person or with your kids, so that you can look at it. And if you're going on a call and you got a rats, I couldn't subdue that one. Sorry. Um, and you uh, are looking up, say we're going on a three-year-old, and you look up what's normal respiratory for a three-year-old, what's normal pulse rate for a three-year-old, blood pressure, and you got a mental picture when you walk in. That's the best thing. But in general, if you commit these to memory as a generalization, um, because you never know if it might be on a test somewhere or something. Um, critical finding is if it's very slow or very fast. So as far as rhythm goes, um, typically even patients that are having respiratory problems will be uh, breathing at regular intervals, and um, but you can have conditions that cause irregular breathing patterns. And for instance, there's one that they go along and they're breathing kind of shallow, and and then they just don't breathe at all. And they breathe some, and it gets a little better, and then they don't breathe at all. And then there's one where they breathe all different levels varies all the time and variations on that so it depends on the condition and, and uh, it's important for rest to learn more about those now um, <coughs> breaths will typically go in and out about for the same lengths of time but when you start seeing respiratory problems like emphysema chronic bronchitis you get patients who um, are having trouble getting the air out you're going to learn about something called air trapping in the lungs, and so it takes some more work to get the air out. But to get it in, but getting it out is a real problem. So the length of time to exhale becomes twice as long or even three times as long. The longer it takes, the worse they are. Also, influenced by talking and coughing, as you know, you're looking for short sentences in a case like that. Um, so you just have to. Um, Take note that a lot of the times you're looking at is it uh, four or five word sentences versus one to two word sentences, or they can't say anything at all, which is a real bad find. As far as quality goes, um, with your chest rise, you can also feel the wall for chest expansion, and we take our hand and put it up on the chest like this, and feel the expansion with our hands and the ribs. Um, that's our 
put our fingers out and help to feel for equality. And then with the stethoscope, um, we listen for abnormal sounds. And, uh, it has, you know, the small bell and the big bell. The, the large one is called the diaphragm, the small side is the bell. And um, the larger one is for hearing lower frequencies, and the smaller part is for hearing higher frequencies. So, as you know, we've gone over it. These are examples of critical findings for respiratory quality. Nothing new. Pulse oximetry, um, as you learned before, learned about um, that it can, you can be fooled by certain things like if they have carbon monoxide poisoning. But one of the things to point out here, which is a good thing, is it's a good idea to pop that on right away before you get the oxygen on, because you get what's called a room air sat, which we'll show here. And get a room air reading so that you know what the patient's baseline is before you have your oxygen. And then you'll look and see, well, okay, the patient's O2 sat was 95%. I put a nasal cannula on four liters, now it's so they responded very well to it and uh, improved. Whereas if I gave a patient, let's say I had a patient at 85% and I put an armor breather on and it only goes up to 88%. They're out of bad situation. So as you may recall, the normal reading for pulse oximetry is 96 to 100. So you got mild, moderate, and severe hypoxia basically in these 5% um, now, even if a patient has a good reading, if the patient has any signs of distress, give them oxygen. We don't withhold the oxygen because we decide that, uh, well, their oxygen reading is good enough. Just like we uh, know, there are some cases that can fool us. And also, um, even if the patient is 98%, they need to have their oxygen, their body, uh, the blood supersaturated with oxygen so that what oxygen is getting around is maximum. So that the area that's needing oxygen getting the most that it possibly can. So we're going to, as we progress, we're going to learn that there are different types of causes of respiratory arrest. There's trauma medical, but also we talked about prescriptions of anxiety and stress um, induced. And we're going to uh, be looking at specific respiratory conditions. Um, so we'll take five, and then we'll take a look at that. and experience a continuous problem, that's the term chronic, and you have causes that vary, but the most common is cigarette smoking, but also passive smoke, people living in an environment where there's cigarette smoking, working in it all the time, as well as uh, foods are working in a, an environment where they have chemical exposure, will also cause this. So, chronic bronchitis, is seen um, where people have inflammation of the lining of the bronchioles. And so what's happening is airways are narrowing because of that. And uh, patients that, there are patients, a lot of people exhibit some signs of both this and that. 